me again this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. In just a minute, I'll be reading from verses 12 through 19. Just to set this up, I want you to be reminded that there's a common theme running throughout Peter's letter here. Since the end of chapter 2, Peter has been talking about how we as believers will be persecuted in the same way that Christ himself was persecuted. Again, it's not a matter of if, but when this will happen and to what extent. And how are we to respond to the persecution that will most certainly come our way? Well, in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, Peter tells us that we are to follow Christ's example, understanding that when persecuted, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he didn't revile in return. He never made any threats against his antagonists, but instead kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In chapter 3, after explaining how our marriages are to mirror Christ's relationship to his church, Peter goes on to remind us that we're not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but we're to give a blessing instead. In verses 13 and following, uh, Peter reminds us that if and when we do suffer for righteousness' sake, we are, in fact, blessed to the extent that we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, to the extent that we maintain a good conscience, suffering for doing what is right versus what is wrong, we can be assured that throughout those trials, throughout those sufferings, we can be assured that we are His and He is ours. Thus far in this fourth chapter, Peter has further exhorted us to remember that just as Christ has suffered in the flesh, we too are to arm ourselves with the same purpose as we fight temptation, as we fight the various pressures that exist to return us to our former sins, to conform us to the world rather than to the will of God. As the end draws nearer and nearer, Peter says that we are to be of sound judgment, sober in spirit, more and more fervent in our love for one another. We're to be hospitable, and we are to minister our gifts for the benefit of each other and ultimately to the glory of God. Well, in our text this morning, Peter's continuing along these same lines. He's continuing with the same sort of exhortation when he writes this in verses 12 through 19. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, as you're probably accustomed to, if you've been here for any length of time, I need to provide my routine disclaimer. There's no way I'm going through this whole passage this morning. It's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, this is probably going to be part one of two, maybe three parts. So we'll just wait and see how all this unfolds. But first things first, I want you to note here that based on the way Peter's exhortation is constructed in the original language, whenever a command is modified by a negative adverb, in this case, not, 
It usually indicates that the recipients of the command are in fact already engaged in the very thing that's being prohibited. That's something important to note when we read the scriptures. Uh, they don't always come across meaning the same things uh, that we would mean if we said something similar. Let me just give you an example. In English, if you, say, if you see a sign that says, do not enter, it's not necessarily being implied that you have entered or that you're thinking about entering. It's just a preemptive warning. If the sign, however, read, hey you, yeah you, stop entering here, then you understand exactly the meaning behind what Peter says here. He's actually saying to his readers, stop being surprised whenever you're faced with various kinds of persecution. I think this is a very relevant thing for us to consider even this morning. Why? Because so many people who claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ know nothing of persecution. Not real persecution. I've shared with you before the, the moans and groans that I often hear from well-meaning professing believers who come to me and say, Pastor, I'm just beside myself. Why is that? Well, because the lady at Target, she didn't say Merry Christmas to me. Oh, the persecution. I said Merry Christmas, and she said Happy Holidays back to me. Folks, that's not persecution. In fact, that doesn't even rank on the scale of any kind of persecution when we consider the persecution faced by those in the Scriptures. We need to be very careful that we understand what persecution is, and at the same time, we need to be very careful that we're not surprised when it happens. You know, I've said this before, I think it certainly bears repeating in this context. Most professing believers in this country today, if they are really Christians at all, are nominal Christians. Now, notice very carefully, I didn't say carnal Christians. There's no such thing. The whole carnal Christian thing, that's an oxymoron. There is no true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who can continue in his or her sin without being chastised by the Lord. It just doesn't happen. So this whole carnal Christian idea, the whole carnal Christian label was developed to excuse the behavior of those who claim to belong to Christ, but whose lives don't reflect that reality. And so when I say that most of the professing Christians in this country today are of the nominal variety, all I'm saying is, I'm really hearkening back to what we talked about last week, these are the 80% of professing believers who are seemingly content to sit back and watch the 20% of believers in the body do all the work. It's the Pareto Principle. It's well known throughout business. In any given productivity scenario, you can almost take it to the bank that 80% of the people are doing nothing while 20% carry the bulk of the load. It's just proven, and it can be proven in most churches as well. Why? Because... Most believers are believers in word only. Most professing believers are only believers because they say that they have done something to merit the eternal favor of God. They've walked an aisle. They've said a prayer. They've been told that from that point on they're, they're good to go. They've not ever been challenged to understand doctrine. They've never been challenged to read their Bibles for all they are worth. They've never been challenged to actually put into practice what they read from the Scriptures. They go to church dutifully on Sunday. They get their cup of feel-good theology. And then that springs a leak sometime during the week. And by the end of the week, they need to come back to get that little cup filled again just to feel better about themselves. This is the nominal Christianity that I'm talking about. Now, again, we can excuse some of these cases. In some cases, these are young believers who have simply not identified their gifts. In other cases, it's simply an ecclesiastical cultural distinctive. In other words, they've just grown accustomed to everyone else doing things in the church, and they don't have to. 
We know this well as pastors because we routinely, even in a church as solid as we are doctrinally and as happy as we are spiritually, we still have the occasional person come up and ask us, when are you going to, and you can fill in the blank with whatever goes on in the church. And of course, those of you who have asked that know what our response is. I don't know, when are you going to do that? People are often surprised when we challenge them in return. No, you go do that. We've got the gifts. We've got the calling in our lives to be doing that which makes the body function optimally. We've talked ad nauseum about 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and how all of our gifts are to work together for the collective good of all of us as well as to the glory of God. And yet, Many people are still nominal in their Christianity. And these are the ones, the very ones, who are most often surprised when persecution does come. Being a Christian in America is extremely easy, especially when we compare that to other places in the world. So when the average Christian here is faced with even the mildest forms of persecution, they are very easily surprised by what seems to be a strange thing happening to them. Now, this sensation can be magnified exponentially in the minds of those professing believers who have fallen for the false gospel of health and wealth, which assures them that Jesus is the solution to all of their problems. You know the gospel I'm talking about, which is really no gospel at all, as Paul told the Galatians. We're talking about this false gospel that says that God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And if you're not happy, healthy, and wealthy, then you're probably in the wrong church. And once you get in the right church, you need to make sure that you're giving the right amount of money to that church in order to maintain your status as happy, healthy, and wealthy. It's funny how that works. The true gospel, though, paints a much different picture. This is another one of those things that really is astonishing in my mind. We talked in the first hour about how it just boggles my mind how people can't understand the simplicity of the doctrines of grace. They always want to muddy the water with their own works. They always want to, mu want to muddy the water with their own false theology. This is very similar. The true gospel is anything but an assurance of health, prosperity, and so on and so forth. The true gospel tells us that if we are conducting ourselves as those clothed in Christ's righteousness, if we are living in the same way that he did, unafraid, to speak the truth, undaunted by the prospect of what mere mortal man might do to us, if we're living the way we have been called to live, we will be persecuted. This is the gospel that Jesus preached. Look at John chapter 15. John 15. And let this resonate in the minds of anyone who might be here thinking that, no, pastor, you're wrong. Jesus just wants me to be happy. John 15, beginning at verse 18. Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But... Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do for my name, do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. This is similar to what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12 when he said very simply, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
And Paul knew this from personal experience, didn't he? You know, Paul's suffering was the Lord's will for him from the very beginning. You ever thought about that? I mean, we all know how distorted people have made the account of Acts chapter 9. You know, that part where Paul's walking down the road to Damascus. He's on his way to arrest Christians and bring them back to stand trial before the council. Many of them who would give their lives as martyrs for the faith. And you know that time when, when he stops in the middle of the road and he's like, hmm, I think I have this all wrong. I think instead of doing that, I think I'm going to believe in Jesus. Is that how it happened? Not at all. He's walking down the road to Damascus, one minute intent on doing harm to the believers in Jesus Christ, and the very next instant, he's saying, yes, Lord. What would you have of me, Lord? How did that happen? It happened by the sovereign grace of God. It happened by the spontaneous power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate him from death and trespasses and sins to newness of life in Christ. And so from that point, Paul lived happily ever after, right? Because all of his woes were cured. All of his problems were solved. No, what happened? Well, in addition to being blinded by the Shekinah glory of Christ himself, having scabs on his eyes, in addition to that, he was also directed to a place. Where was he directed? He was directed to the house, or he was through Ananias. Ananias received a vision, you'll recall from Acts chapter 9, told him to go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul who was praying was there. Ananias is told that Paul had received a vision, and what vision did Paul receive? Paul received the vision that a man named Ananias would come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, what was Ananias' initial reaction? This just tells you how well-known, how notorious Paul was. At first, because of Paul's, then Saul's, murderous reputation, Ananias questioned whether he should obey or not. He did obey. And note carefully what the Lord said to Ananias in verses 15 and 16. He said, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how to live his best purpose-driven life now in unbridled happiness, health, and unimaginable wealth. Is that not what it says? No, what did the Lord say? From the very beginning, he says, Go, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul's life was in fact filled with suffering, was it not? Paul knew no rest. This is why Paul longed to finish the race. This is why he longed to be done at the end of his life. And he considered it all worth it. All what? Well, look at 2 Corinthians 11. You know, there are a lot of examples that we can point to throughout Scripture, but the best one comes from Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. It's here that he shares his sufferings as a disciple of Christ. And don't forget how he starts this. He says, I speak as if mad. In other words, you're going to think I'm crazy. Crazy for what? For having gone through all this. For even considering that it was worth it. Paul says here that he had been in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That's one shy of what should have killed a man. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. You think Paul's life was a bed of ease? What do you think Paul would have said to those gospel hucksters who insist that Jesus just wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy? He would have cursed them. He would have said the same thing he says in Galatians 1.8. That is a, another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. You know, it's rightly been said that the world doesn't persecute religious people so much as it persecutes righteous people. Remember what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3.12 about why Cain killed Abel. Cain killed Abel because Cain's own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain killed his brother because he could not stand the fact that his brother possessed a righteousness that he himself didn't have. This is why Christians are persecuted today. John 3, verses 19 through 21. You know this passage well, or at least you should. And I've said before, a lot of people read as far as John three sixteen. They close their Bibles and, yep, that's what I'm hanging my hat on. Keep reading. Keep reading. John 3, 19 through 21. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil thing, evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You know, I'm sick to death of professing Christians who sit and bemoan all the things that are going on in our world. Rather than doing something about it, they'd rather sit and complain. We're in the midst of Gay Pride Month. Not only is homosexuality a sin, but pride is also a sin. They combine the two without any kickback from the body of Christ. Do you realize if there were as many true believers as there are professing believers in any given locale in this country, the gay pride movement would not stand a chance. Here's the thing. I'm not saying that we do violence against them. I'm not saying that we go and set them straight and put them in, in you know, concentration camp-like things and and reprogram them. No. But can you imagine if all of those who are actually professing Christ, if they were actually true believers and began to pray in earnest that God would rid us of this disease, that God would so touch the hearts of those afflicted by this disease that they would fall down in repentance and acknowledge faith in Him? Can you imagine if instead of moaning and groaning about it, we all went out and began to approach these people lovingly, calmly, with the gospel of God's grace, explaining to them that we were just like them in many other ways. We were lost and the Lord of glory found us and that they can be found too. The reason evil permeates our society, and no, I'm not taking a theonomic right turn here, but it's clear the reason that evil permeates our society is because those who profess Christ are doing nothing and saying nothing to turn the cultural tide. Those of you who are 
who are old enough to remember living in the 50s and the 60s. You know what I'm talking about when we had this general and pervasive understanding that certain things are not to be done out in the open. Certain things are not to be talked about in the open. We, those things are sinful and we reserve those for the dark corners and the back rooms. And Why did people do that? Just because of what we read here in John 3. They were ashamed. There was a time when sin was shameful in the minds of most people. There was a time when the church at large acted as a preserving factor, acted as a deterring factor to such open and wanton displays of sin. And I'm not talking just about homosexuality. You add, to that, add that to the list of many other sins that are just in our face today. The reason those things still flourish is because the church is not doing anything to counteract them. They're just not. As a matter of fact, many churches are reaching out to embrace those sins and make them normal normal in the body of Christ or what they think is the body of Christ. Light has come into the world. The evil hates the light. Then you have to ask yourself, then why is evil so predominant in our culture it's because the light's not shining it's because my light's not shining brightly enough and your light's not shining brightly enough let me just cut to the chase here and just say this if you're not experiencing some form of persecution whether from family members friends co-workers others that you routinely come into contact with you're not living in righteousness and I, I know some of you are probably sitting there, well, that's a judgmental thing to say. And you're right. It is a judgmental thing to say. But guess what? It's not my judgment. It's the judgment of the Lord himself who repeatedly warns us that if we're living in righteousness, we will face persecution from a lost and increasingly hostile world. If the world is not hostile toward you, it means you're not giving them any reason to be hostile toward you. And I'm not talking about being a knucklehead. We'll go on and talk about that later, where Peter says, let none of you suffer for this, that, and the other thing. Let it be for righteousness' sake that you're persecuted. So if you're not being persecuted, what can you conclude reasonably about yourself? You're not behaving righteously. Whoever glorifies God will anger the enemy. And he'll take every opportunity to attack you in one form of persecution or another. For the true believer, instead of being a strange thing, persecution should be a constant companion. What should be strange for the Christian is the absence of persecution. Now, before we move on to verse 13 of our text, I don't want you to miss Peter's brief explanation for why we're persecuted. In the middle of verse 12, he says that the fiery ordeal of persecution that we often experience comes upon us for our testing. The most important takeaway from this part of the passage is that it reveals that Peter wants his readers to understand that we should not consider persecution that's born out of righteousness to be a negative thing because most of the time God uses such things to reveal to us and to the watching world what we're actually made of. The word fiery here is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word used in Psalm 66.10. Psalm 66.10 is where the psalmist speaks to this very thing. He says, You have tried or tested us, O God, you have refined us as silver is refined. In Peter's day, much like today, in order to get the purest silver, what do you do? You put it in a crucible and you heat it up 
And when it begins to melt, the dross, the useless metals, rise to the surface and they skim those off. And this is a process that can go on, depending on the size of the silver that you're working with, this can go on for quite a bit of time until all of that's removed. And when all of that's removed, once the silver reaches its solid state again, the silversmith can actually see his reflection in it. You tell me there's not a spiritual significance there. When God tries us as by fire, he's burning off all of those useless things in our lives. And he'll keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing it until the Lord can see his own face in us. Warren Wiersbe made this really helpful observation. He said, God has never promised us that we would miss the storm, but he has promised that we would make the harbor. When God puts his own people into the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He knows how long and how much. This reminded me of what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, about temptation. Which temptation is just another form of testing that God often allows for our growth. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Aren't you grateful, even for the times when you find yourself in God's crucible? You know, a lot of you go through various things, and, you know, in some cases, your sin can also bring about chastisement. It's not always just tests and things of that nature. A lot of times, you bring things on yourself in the form of God's punishment. But I would say don't bemoan any of that. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So you have that. If you're going through something, whether it be the result of unrepentant sin or whether that be the result of God simply testing you to remove all the imperfections from you, praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for the time in the crucible, knowing, as Wiersbe said, that his eye's on the clock and his hand is on the thermostat. He knows. He knows. So the fiery ordeals that we often experience are actually good things. The fiery ordeals, the fiery trials that we experience are actually God's way of molding and shaping us more into Christ's image. We just read from 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul goes on at length sharing his own fiery ordeals as a believer. What I intentionally refrain from reading until now is Paul's assessment of it all in verse 30. Remember what he said at the end of all that? What would most people say if they enumerated a list that lengthy? Most of us, if we're being honest, you know, I've been in this danger and that danger, this has happened to me and that's happened to me. We get to the end and we'd be like, Lord, why are you picking on me? Right? What did Paul say? Verse 30, he says, if I have to boast... I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. What does that mean? Well, thankfully, Paul tells us, if you look over at the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, Paul explains exactly what it means to boast about one's weakness. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Now, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? We don't know. There have been many, many, many speculative statements made in this regard, but we just don't know. Paul says, even after he pleaded with the Lord to be relieved of this, he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power 
is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulty, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, from the world's perspective, that's a ridiculous statement. It doesn't make any sense. Why? Because we've all been conditioned to believe that true success in life is purely a matter of the survival of the fittest, that only the strong, not only physically but mentally as well, only the strong have what it takes to live and thrive in our increasingly hostile world. We've been told that. What Paul writes here would have been not only revolutionary, but again, ridiculous in the minds of many of his readers. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. What does that even mean? Well, it's simple, really. The only thing that really matters at the end of the day is that we recognize that we operate most efficiently as believers when we rely not on our own strength, but on the Lord's strength. And whenever we fail to do that, when we insist that we're able in and of ourselves to handle things on our own, the Lord can and will bring things into our lives to weaken our dependence on ourselves and increase our dependence on Him. You can try to go it alone as a believer. You'll never make it. You'll never make it. And God is intent on proving to us that we'll never make it. God will plague us with everything from the sniffles to a life-threatening disease if need be to get us as believers to turn our focus away from ourselves and onto Him. The less dependent you are able to be in yourself, the more dependent you as a believer can be in Him. You understand how that works? Paul says, I don't despair over the things that have happened to me. Because I know that whatever happens to me is for my good and His glory. I don't moan and groan about this inconvenience and that inconvenience because I recognize that all of these things are evidence of the Lord working in me to bring about His perfect will and to conform me more to the image of His Son. And when this happens, Paul says, we should be quick to praise the Lord. We should be quick to thank Him for the sanctification going on in our lives. But how do we normally respond? I'm just going to ask you, how do you normally respond when things become difficult for you as a believer? You're all, ostensibly at least, professing believers. How do you respond when negative things happen to you, when you're inconvenienced, when, you know, well, I know because I'm one of you. I don't have to spend 10 minutes on I-35 to tell you exactly what happens when I feel closed in, when I feel like my schedule's threatened, when I feel like my best laid plans are going awry. You know what I'm talking about. We complain. We're angry. We're resentful. Frustrated. Bewildered. when that happens, we can begin to feel sorry for ourselves, which can result in depression, anxiety. Sometimes we can even blame God for what we perceive to be unfair or unwarranted trials. I know some of you are going through things in your families that are not ideal. Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you allowing that to happen? Why has this befallen me? Why can't I have this as opposed to that? Lord, I'm growing weary. I'm growing tired. I'm resentful. I'm angry. Stop! The Lord doesn't operate in the realm of His children on the basis of how you feel about anything. 
He's doing what he's doing because in some way that you're probably oblivious to, it's for his glory and for your good. Oh, it sure doesn't feel like it's good. Stop it. Stop complaining. I'm saying that to myself too. Tim, stop complaining. I find myself doing it incessantly. I find myself doing it even though I've worked all week preparing a message where I'm going to stand here and say to you, don't do that. But we need to stop. We need to be still and know that He is God. And instead of complaining about it being dark, we need to light a candle. We need to let the light that has been shed abroad in our hearts illuminate the lost and dying world that we're in. We need to start looking at the persecutions that we face and the trials that we have to endure as God's working in us to bring about His perfect will. The weaker we are in ourselves, the stronger we'll be in Him. I mean, this is the key to what Peter goes on to say in verses 13 and 14. Concerning our appropriate response to persecution, he tells us that instead of thinking some strange thing is happening to us when we're persecuted, he says, to the degree that we share the sufferings of Christ, we are to keep rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, we may rejoice with exultation. If we are reviled for the name of Christ, we are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on us. This is actually the same sentiment that Peter expressed back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Remember what he said there? He said, in this, that is the great hope that we have as believers, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Folks, we need to get a new perspective. We need to learn to react differently. Now again, you can suffer all kinds of things for being a knucklehead. We're going to talk about that later. But if you're suffering for being righteous, count it a blessing. Count it as joy. All the trials that Peter's readers had experienced as believers up to this point had no dampening effect whatsoever on their joy. They were living examples of James's admonition in James 1, verses 2 and 3. Remember what he said there? He said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when things go well for you and you're happy and healthy and wealthy. No. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. I know a lot of people who pray for patience. I don't know too many who thank God for patience when it happens. Going back to the Apostle Paul's thoughts on this in Romans 5, 1 through 4, Paul says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. You want to have a greater hope? Gain a right perspective on persecutions and suffering. So the Colossians, you'll recall Paul saying in Colossians 1.24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Which is really just another way of Paul saying, I suffer joyfully for you as an extension of Christ and his own suffering. And he says he did this for the sake of his body, which is the church. And you might ask, where did these men learn this most important lesson? Well, they learned it from the Lord himself. Remember what the Lord said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You ever wonder when you read things like Fox's Book of Martyrs, you read these glowing testimonies of these men who were able to endure under the harshest, most vile forms of persecution, and yet at the end of their lives they're singing hymns, praising the Lord, seemingly in no pain at all. You ever wonder how they do that? It's all the grace of God. Whatever persecution might come our way, we would do well to understand that if it's for righteousness' sake, we have reason not only to rejoice in the here and now, Peter says, but when the time comes for us to see him in all his glory, we will rejoice with exultation. I hate to say this to such a non-charismatic crowd, but the word exultation there is translated literally as jump for joy. As I thought about this, I thought of another great hymn that we seldom sing. I think we're going to sing it as our closing hymn this morning. In the fifth verse, we sing, One day the trumpet will sound for His coming. One day the skies with His glory will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one's bringing, glorious Savior, this Jesus is mine. And this is followed by the chorus. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Rising, He justified freely forever. One day He's coming. Oh, glorious day. On that day, we'll all leap for joy. On that day, the race will be finished. The battle will be won. We'll enjoy eternity with our Savior forever. I know that's saying the same thing twice, but that's okay. This is the day that Peter refers to here in our text. A day when all that suffering will be over. All of our difficulties, all of our temptations, all of our trials, and all of our tears. Aren't you grateful that we're going to a place where there's streets of gold and not messed up interstates? But all of our suffering, all of our trials will have been worth it on that day. As Peter tells us in verse 14 of our text, the primary cause for our rejoicing when persecuted for the name of Christ is that such persecution is evidence that the spirit of glory and of God rests on us. I mean, think about it. Who else in the world, apart from those on whom the Holy Spirit rests, would ever even begin to entertain the thought of rejoicing in persecution? No one. This is something that's simply not possible without the Lord's sovereign enablement. Now, don't miss Peter's precise wording here. We all understand well enough the concept of the Holy Spirit in us, but what does it mean to have the Holy Spirit resting on us? What Peter's doing here, he's actually quoting from Isaiah in Isaiah 11:2 where Isaiah said this about the Messiah. He said, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the incredible thing about Peter's use of this Messianic prophecy is that it also refers to all who believe. Our ability to rejoice in the face of even the harshest persecution is one of the byproducts of Christ's perpetual ministry to us by way of the Holy Spirit. It's as if the Holy Spirit is on us to the extent that we're enshrouded. We all know that the Holy Spirit is earnest money, a down payment given for what we will enjoy in eternity. We were sealed in God's Holy Spirit. Do you understand what that means? It means that come what may, none of it should bother you. Come what may, none of it should be an inconvenience for you. But instead, you should be grateful for those examples of God's obvious indwelling by way of the Holy Spirit. 
Now here's where we need to be really careful in our application of what Peter writes here. And this is what we're going to talk about, Lord willing, next, next week. If we're suffering for righteousness' sake, that's one thing. But if we're acting in such a way as to deserve the reproach of others, that's another thing entirely. That's not persecution, by the way. If you're persecuted for not being righteous, that's another thing altogether. And we're going to talk about that, Lord willing, in our next time together. Until then, let me just leave you with this. I want us all to live our lives in such a way that when we are persecuted, we're persecuted for no other reason than being like Christ. Only then will we be able to rejoice. Only then will we be able to comprehend the absolute honor and privilege of sharing in His suffering. Folks, it will be worth it in the end. It will be. Live like Christ. Suffer like Christ. And then relish in the fact that you are joint heirs with Christ. And that should be enough for all of us. His grace is sufficient. Rely on that. Believe that. If you've yet to come to Christ, today is the day of salvation. If you've yet to come to Christ, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You've not been given the ears to hear. You're probably bored beyond belief right now. That's okay. We all who know Christ, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we want you to know Him. Will you believe today? You've sat under the hearing of the gospel yet again. Don't harden your hearts. Recognize your lost condition. Cry out to Him who alone can save you, and He will. I certainly pray that that's the case with at least one who's here this morning.